Do you still think of yourself as Chinese or do you ever think of yourself as North American? You, you, you know what I want to think of myself? As a human being. Because, I mean, I don't want it sounds like, you know, as Confucius say, but under the sky, under the heaven, man, there is but one family. It just so happened, man, that people are different. That is exactly the daughter my mom wishes came out of her vagina. I'm sorry about her. Hello and welcome to Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I'm Jason. And I'm Max. And today, oh well, on this episode, we will be tackling Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, starring Simu Liu as Shang, Aquafina as Katie, Tony Chuai Liu as Zhu Wenwu, Ben Kingsley as Trevor Schlatterly. That was a nice surprise, by the way. I didn't know he was going to be in it. Mingo Zhang as Jiling, Fala Chen as Li, the ever-impressive Michelle Yeoh as Yin Na. Let's see here. Who else do I want to grab here? Uh, Florian Montanu as Razor Fist and oh gosh Jason do you know who plays Wong oh I believe it's Benedict Wong isn't it Benedict Wong okay and Benedict Wong makes an appearance in the film so I want to mention him should be easy uh, to remember <laughs> yeah and uh, there is also Andy Lee uh, no 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 so Andy Lee plays Death Dealer he's an important character and that's I think that's the main cast that we want to we want to hammer in on folks Shang-Chi has been a film that Marvel fans have been waiting for for a long time because it seemed like a no-brainer it's a Kung Fu character. So I want to talk a little bit about the origin of Shang-Chi. We're talking early 1970s. The Kung Fu craze has just hit and Shang-Chi was born in the pages of Marvel Special Edition number 15 way back in December of 1973. Right along with me, by the way, as I was also born in that year. And audience, you'll be the, you'll have to decide which was the more important event uh, in, the, in the history of the cosmos. He was created by Steve Englehart and Jim Starlin. Both major players in Marvel of the 70s and Jim all the way up into today. Shang-Chi was, an, I think, kind of an attempt to capitalize on that Kung Fu phrase I was talking about. You guys will have heard some Bruce Lee war cries at the beginning of our intro material. Jason hasn't heard this yet, but that's what I'm going to, I'm going to cut this in. But, and, and there's a particular reason for that, because Bruce Lee is certainly the character that, that, that Marvel drew heavily, most heavily on to create their Shang-Chi. So Kung Fu character, Marvel editors weren't sure, though, if an Asian lead, specifically a Chinese lead, would sell to audiences. So they had acquired the rights to Sax Romer's Fu Manchu series. And so they thought they would pair this new character that nobody had heard anything of before with the Sax Romer universe. And Sax Romer wrote these basically yellow scare pulp fiction novels about this, this uh, Chinese villain named Fu Manchu. And that's where we get some of the characters of, of the, in the comic book. We don't meet any of these characters in the movie. Dr. James Petrie, Richard Nayland Smith. In the comic books, his sister's name is Falo Su. Oh, no, so fa sorry, sorry. Fa, fa Su Li, who's the daughter of Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu is the father of Shang-Chi in the comic books. Now, a little bit about the Sax Romer novels. They're really well-written, hugely problematic novels. You can, I can't recommend them because, like I said, it is they were yellow scare pulps. And while there's not a lot of like racial epithets thrown in them, it's clearly the Chinese are the scary enemy, right? Sidebar. 
audience, you've heard us mention the phrase yellow peril, yellow scare. It's also known as the yellow terror and sometimes called the yellow specter. It was a kind of late 19th century, early 20th century cultural moment and a suite of ideas about Asia and Asians and how they were an existential threat to Western colonial, specifically white uh, identity uh, and colonial ambition. You can see the out, uh, I guess the output or the, the consequences of this movement in racist policies against Chinese Americans, specifically uh, in the early, well, in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, you can see it in the kind of racist treatment that a lot of Japanese Americans would face all the way up until, you know, post-World War II. So it was a long cultural moment. It had fairly specific consequences and, and we see it in art as well, and specifically in the art of Sax Romer's pulps. But it wasn't just there. You could see it, especially in a lot of the pulp fiction of the late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, falls off pretty precipitously after the World War II, um, but, you know, it was still present and people were still reading Sax Romer up into the 70s, obviously. So uh, take a moment, look it up. It's kind of an interesting and sad piece of history, but worth remembering. So into the sidebar. But so so Marvel had these but Marvel had this kind of ready-made mythology that the the English speaking public already kind of knew a lot about. There had been Fu Manchu movies, strangely starring Christopher Lee. And so <laughs> I've just killed Jason there. But that's where we get the Sifan assassins and some of these other elements that we'll see in this movie terribly, I mean incredibly reworked. But it is it was funny to me that this was a worry that they needed some Caucasian or English-speaking European cast in the comic book, given that they were trying to given that Marvel was trying to capitalize on a phenomena that basically was Asian leads, right? So it seems strange. <laughs> and of course, very quickly, they, they realized that, that, that Shang-Chi is the focus. The Marvel readership loves Shang. But, but Marvel is sort of straddling this, this knife edge of like being drifting into that yellow peril Romer territory and being progressive uh, and inclusive. And this sort of, this, this is interesting, and I won't get into it too much, but this, this, this tension between cultural appropriation, its most negative aspects, and progressive, inclusive fiction is played out in the letter columns of the Shang-Chi comic because we sometimes the racists will write into Marvel and they'll be upset and Marvel will have to defend will 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 defend in the letter columns of these 1970s 1980s comics that that anybody can be a hero right and then there was a, there's this professor whose name I can't remember one of the I, I read these editions of Shang-Chi in these big thick Marvel omnibuses that reprint the letter columns and there's a college professor that will write in and try and push Marvel to get away from the yellow the yellow uh, coloration of of their Shang-Chi and specifically their Fu Manchu who is kind of this pale yellow in the comic and 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 then Marvel the Marvel's editors are sort of trying to defend that and come up with an explanation for that that doesn't make them seem bad but it's interesting to see that tension play out and the fans clearly love Shang-Chi and they could have done they could have it seemed to me as you look back they could have done more to get away from those those kinds of yellow peril tropes they they didn't realize it at the time, but but the, the series progresses, uh, and I'll, I'll kind of wrap this up a little bit. Shang-Chi ran off and on from 73 to probably 84, and by the middle of the series, he is he is clearly the star, and I mean, he, at, towards the end of the series, he is the leading man. He He's an MI6 agent, very much ahead of the curve, I think, I mean, or catching up to the curve, I don't know, depending on where you're at socially, I suppose, in this time period, but Marvel had found out that, you know, the fans just like him 
him and it's fine. We don't necessarily have to have him surrounded by white heroes either. You know, he can he can stand on his own, but always has been a popular character. And ever since the MCU got its feet underneath it, it's my understanding, certainly been my position as I've been a long time Shang-Chi fan. Why hasn't Marvel made a Shang-Chi film? I mean, a Kung Fu martial arts film is not the most expensive kind of film to make. So it is strange to me that it's taken this long for them to make a Shang-Chi movie. But as I've watched the movie, maybe, maybe the way it was worth it. Jason, anything you want to ask or uh, add to this? No, I, I mean, actually, I, uh, I I really appreciated that analysis. You just said it lasted till 84? Well, off and on, off and on. So there would be like, you know, there would be these uh, series. I, th- I want to say 84. I'm not sure if that's right. But it was into the 80s. Shang-Chi never... Shang-Chi never hit on all cylinders the way Conan did, right? Conan, Conan was almost... No, I, I, I see that. But, it, but what you're saying is that it keep, it, they kept coming back to it. Sidebar. Audience, I was really close, uh, and I was really close on memory alone. Uh, the Sha- the actual Shang-Chi comic, uh, The Hands of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu, ran from April 1974 and ended on issue, with issue 125 in June 1983. It's a really, really solid run, and in the intervening time, uh, sorry, in, during that time, rather, Shang-Chi appeared in numerous comics, uh, typically with sort of your street-level heroes. But after 1983, Shang-Chi didn't pop up very much until the early 2000s when pulp-inspired writers like Ed Baker and I think Matt Fraction sort of brought him back and started to play with him a little bit. And now, of course, he's got his own series, which relaunched in 2017 uh, as a legacy edition, almost picking up right where the previous issue in the previous series left off with uh, issue 126 of The Hands of Shang-Chi, Master of Kung Fu. So rush out and get your copies now. So into the sidebar. It's always been a character that people love to see pop up in the comics, even after the series has been canceled. He's, he's Shang-Chi is certainly a beloved character in the Marvel universe. Right. And, and you know, and, and uh, you know, like you refer to a lot of the yellow scare stuff you know, and, and yes. being a, a, an aspect of that, and which is well forgotten. Yeah. Or, or well, well moved past. But it's very interesting if, if listeners listening to this podcast would see it as a sequel to Enter the Dragon, you know, our, our previous podcast, yeah. we talked about Bruce Lee and how he tried to enter into the U.S. you know kind of film market. Yeah, and uh, or, or excuse me, before that, when he tried to enter into American television and how he came up with the idea of kung fu. Yeah, and they wouldn't cast him in the lead, which which looking back is ridiculous. Yeah, but they but they didn't want um, this. They didn't want him to play that figure, the, the lead character, to be someone who would be an an Asian American, and Bruce Lee was an American. Born in San Francisco, yeah. But to me, when I look and and and, I, and, and folks, Max has has read Shang Chi the, the comic, uh, and I have not. But I am aware that the character was absolutely, at least physically, based on Bruce Lee. Yeah, yeah. A major figure at this time when when the comic came out. You said 1973. 1973, yeah. And you said now uh, now uh, folks, just so you know, uh, that comic was released in 1973, and Max says there's like there's this comic. Conflict. There's this controversy. What was the more important event in 1973? Was it the release of that comic? Was Max's birth? I also was born in 1973, and uh, and just uh, so people know, in the heyday of the Beatles, Ringo received more fan mail than anybody else, and so maybe, maybe my birth was the most important event of that year. I'll, but I will leave that to everyone else. But but what I would suggest is that to our eyes, and rightly so, a lot of the things that you've described 
described about that comic were influenced by things that came before it oh, yeah. or, or, or ignorant. But there were some things about the comic that if you were alive in 1973, which we were, but we were not speaking or, you know, our, our, our brains were not fully developed. If you lived at that time and if you could look at that comic with 1973 eyes, it might have seemed cutting edge. Oh, it's funny that you say that because that is exactly what several writers in the Marvel bullpen thought. In fact, the guy who took over for Steve Englehart, uh, Steve got, Steve and Jim did a, a short run on Shang-Chi, Jim Starlin, Starlin, I want to say, but they were guys who had their eyes on other things. And, but after Don McGregor and Doug Moick, or Moinch, uh, sorry, Doug, if I've got your name wrong. Barely a listener. Yeah, but Doug uh, and Don, Don McGregor, I think did a lot of work on Black Panther, but they were also being burdened with proofreading for 40 hours a week in addition to all of their writing duties. It sounds like quite a hellhole to work at in the 70s, but everybody seemed to love it. But they read Shang-Chi and they were like, knocked their socks off. They like all the superhero stuff, but they were like, this is something new. This is something we haven't seen before. They likened it to the Conan series that Marvel was doing. And, and Doug really wanted to work on the series. And, and then, and so he ends up getting tapped right away, actually, to write the series. And he did that for a lot of the 70s. And it was his first foray into, into being able to write full-time and not do... A lot of people working at Marvel in the 70s did everything. They wrote, they proofread, you know, they fetched coffee, whatever it was they needed to do, whatever, whatever they did whatever the plot at Marvel required that week. Right. And so somebody overheard Doug say that, and then sure enough, uh, Roy Thomas, Stan Lee's right-hand man throughout the 70s, was like, oh, we heard you, uh, heard you wanted to work on this. And then Doug says, Doug says, I just read about this today, guys, so sorry, it's on my mind. Doug says, look, if you want me to write this, I got to drop everything else. My wife's about to leave me. I can't keep proofreading. I'm going to have to go full-time freelance. And Roy Thomas didn't bat an eye. I thought you'd say that. And immediately said, that's fine. You do that. Just work out the rest of the week so we can, he said, Roy Thomas knew that Doug would say yes. And he'd already hired his replacement for proofreading and editing. So anyway, Doug Moinch, I'm sorry if I'm getting that wrong. Doug, feel free to call me. Uh, we'll talk about your last name. But everybody at Marvel was really jazzed by how cool and innovative Shang-Chi seemed to the, to the, to this superhero heavy group. But instead of being a superhero, this is a guy who basically worked his body. His skills are born of his effort you know he's an interesting character oh but but but, you know, but a tribute to bruce lee and this Absolutely. is something no no but because i mean even for us even for us you know bruce lee died when we were still toddlers yeah well actually end of the dragon came out in 73 that was his last movie okay, so we, so we were still in our infancy yeah. i mean so quite right that okay but, but but i guess i'm saying that after he died there was this kind of bruce lee appreciation that went on for a long time it still continues today to this day but I think that there were, you know, teenagers at that time, the, the so-called Kung Fu craze, yep. Kung Fu movies that came out at that time, that Bruce Lee was this kind of supernatural figure uh, that we, and we talked about this um, when we talked about End of the Dragon, that, you know, really this comic was very much within the kind of, the kind of ethos of that time and definitely is very influential on everything, everything that's come about since. Absolutely. So I think that we can look at this comic 
comic and we can say, well, this is kind of dated, but it's based on the work of this actor who continues to have influence on martial arts related films to this day. I mean, we talked about this. Bruce Lee is still the most important martial arts actor of all time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, I, I know there, that there has been that there have been others who have made more films, but Bruce Lee was the individual who actually uh, created this 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 sense of we need to make more films with this kind of guy. Well, that's absolutely right because yeah. like even though he died in 73, probably throughout the, the rest of the 70s, there were a number of Bruce Lee clones and everybody was trying to look like him and be like him. Yes. Do films like him and all not nearly as good, but but clearly that was a, that was in the air and, it, and, and you're right. It, it, the legacy of Bruce Lee is stamped all over this comic. Yes. And, and that brings us to this film. Jason, you've been tasked with some production notary. What what did you find out that was interesting? How did this film finally, how did Marvel, if you could, if you found out, maybe it's still a deep secret in the Marvel vault. How did Marvel finally come to listen to the fans who had been clamoring for a Shang-Chi movie? Well, um, it, it's interesting. Stan Lee actually wanted to make something, to make a film about this character in the 80s. He, he was very interested in it at that time, and he was interested in Brandon Lee. Oh. Bruce Lee's son yeah, yeah. being the main character but of course <laughs> marvel fans who are listening will know that those were lean years aside from the incredible hulk television show there weren't many um marvel projects that were worth remembering <laughs> Either A, seeing the light of day, or B, yeah, worth remembering. But nothing really happened with it. Shang-Chi was, was on the list of projects that Marvel was interested in in the early 2000s. Okay. Avi Arad was in charge of uh, of Marvel Pictures, but never really, you know, kind of in the queue of, of characters that, that they were going to develop. Was was probably pretty low on the list. And to be fair, that was probably understandable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, because, I mean, you and I both remember just seeing Spider-Man done well in 2002 was a dream come true. But then there were all these other characters that had these these books that were very popular and sold a lot and 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 were timeless. And we wanted to see them done first. But Shang-Chi was talked about at the time, but didn't see the light of day uh, then either. Uh, Stephen Norrington, uh, who I believe directed the first Blade and um, was famously hated by Sean Connery for directing uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentleman was Ooh. was originally attached to direct a, uh, a Shang-Chi film in the early 2000s. That never happened. Yeah, it, it, it's only now that uh, you know when when a lot when some of the Marvel characters from the uh, in the MCU have kind of been put to bed. Spoilers: If you've not, if you're you three people that have not seen Avengers Endgame, you might want to shut the podcast off now. Uh, <laughs> On 20 years of movie making, Tony Stark being deceased now, Captain America being out of action, the Black Widow being like, you know, there was definitely this move away from the first wave of the MCU and now there's this move to introduce some of these other characters and to try to give them their due by making them perhaps main characters in, in the MCU and the decision came to create a film that would star Chinese American act actors yeah. um, and update 
and, and this is kind of you know tied to what Max was just talking about in terms of the original Shang-Chi comic book, some of its problematic elements, to take to take that character and the storyline, maybe the storylines, just the elements of the original comic, and kind of sift through those and kind of recast it, if you will, or you know, melt it down and then recast it into a more modern telling. And that's what this movie was intended to do. It's directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, who was actually born in Hawaii, um, but uh, played a, a, a major role in, in, in writing the script, updating the story, and then and then directing the film. And it is fully responsible as an artist for the crafting of this movie. Well, it's interesting because there's a lot of elements from the early issues of Shang-Chi that actually do make it into the script. Now they've done away with the Fu Manchu thing yes. for obvious reasons. And Marvel had done away with it as well by this point before the film had. And so we have instead of uh, Fu Manchu being Shang-Chi's father, this character Zhu Wu is his father. And and that's I think that was an important thing to do. But a lot of the rest of the elements of the early story, the early issues, do stay some of the conflicts that happened between Shang-Chi. Um, now in the comic book, well, and I think this, this holds too, but we'll, I guess we'll get to the, some of the changes that get made earlier. But uh, go ahead, Jason. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, I mean, that's the, um, that's, that's most of the production notes. That There is a certain amount of controversy with the film. Yes. Uh, Marvel, Marvel made this movie with an eye for the Chinese audience. Now, has anybody said that? I know that was the knock from a lot of fans that they were all like, this is all just, a, this isn't about anything. They're just trying to get the Chinese market. And this isn't about <laughs> fans. And I, so my position on this, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong here. I thought Marvel was just trying to do a good movie about a character that is beloved by fans and if it did well in the Chinese market then so be it but it, I didn't get the sense from Kevin Feige or anybody involved that this was just some sort of like cynical cash grab now the Chinese market has definitely played a role in Marvel decision making and and here I'm referring to uh, another small controversy that Marvel uh, it ginned up by trying to placate that market and that's with Doctor Strange and the Ancient One now everybody would thought everybody was every, there were many fans who were like oh Marvel's being racist they're whitewashing this character the ancient one played by Tilda Swinton and and it, and indeed there is some element of truth in this but it wasn't American racism that fueled this decision in the comic book the ancient one was a Tibetan monk and so Marvel made the decision because a huge part of their uh, 20% of their of their business now or 20% of the film business now is the is the Chinese market and so a lot of American filmmakers are bending to the whims of that market now and by and when I say that market what I mean to say is the Chinese government's policies because I, I don't know what the Chinese populace would think about any of these things they probably wouldn't care one way or the other but the government has a certain specific agenda and what they let in is is probably attached very much to their view of the world having a Tibetan hero is something that the Chinese government is just not going to tolerate so if you want your film to get shown in China then you change that character out. And, and so now that's a cynical move on Marvel's part. You know, there's a huge criticism of capitalism made here. You know, that I've, I've heard and you've heard our whole lives, of course, that that, that free markets are the are the way to, to change the world. You know, there's a certain there's a certain wing of our body politic that will tell you that, right? Instead, what we see is that corporations and, and business owners will certainly bend over backwards to, 
to gain market share in certain markets. And if they have to compromise principles, it doesn't seem that they won't do that. Now, this is taking us far afield on the on the podcast here, but 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 because of that that cynical move by Marvel, it does open them up to this criticism that they're just making this movie for the Chinese market. Well, I mean, uh, it takes us far afield, but it's not irrelevant mm-hmm. because the the question is okay if that's the the production motivation. Okay, you can criticize that motivation or not criticize that motivation. That's not what we're here to do. No, like, this is not a political podcast. This is a film podcast. Does it affect the story? Now, and I'm very glad I noticed that you almost said Asian market. Yeah. Because in everywhere except China, in the Asian market, this film has done fantastic. Yes. So I, it's, I guess what I would say from a production point of view, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with, with this desire to please a wide variety of people. You know? No, no, no. No, okay. This is not, this is not an art film. This is a film that is intended to reach a large number of people. So the way that it should be looked at, is does it does it does it achieve that does it accomplish that but 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 let me let me push back a little bit all films want to reach a large number of people yes you know and so so absolutely that's the case any artist who who doesn't want to reach a large number of people doesn't want to put dinner on their plate you know right right. so so there's i don't think there's any foul in wanting to reach a large audience which i think is going to dovetail to what you're saying about the art go on sorry yeah yeah i mean i i I I kind of feel like that that the way this film should be evaluated is did Marvel succeed in crafting something that would please everybody and did they disguise it in such a way that at no point in the story do you see the man behind the curtain yeah. where oh okay this story element is just really to please these people over here or 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 is there to please me like you know that's what I don't want I don't you know I I think that as 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 film watchers we don't want to see the man behind the curtain. We want to be able to watch the story and all that other stuff that we're talking about, the political part of it, the, well, we don't want to offend this group. We don't want to offend this group. Like I'm not, I'm not really when in discussing film, I'm quite willing to do a political podcast, but in discussing film, I want to talk about that. No, no. When you craft, when you craft the story, are you able to disguise that part of it in such a way that I am never out of the story and that point? Well, and here's why I'm going to defend Marvel and I just thought about this I hadn't thought about this until we started talking about the podcast but a craven way Marvel could have done this as opposed to just trying to make a a movie that would appeal to the Chinese audience and every audience really but a way they could have guaranteed to get themselves into the Chinese market would be to have given some real nods to the Chinese government they could have made they could have made them they could have made the Chinese military some kind of heroic element of the film they could have they could have done really cynical and and craven things to get past the the Chinese government censors, which we probably won't get past now in this in our podcast. But but they didn't do any of that. They leaned on on elements that we've seen in other kung fu films and other Chinese films. Uh, but they don't go out of their way to praise China. They don't go out of their way to praise the Chinese government. They don't do anything that would get them in that would get them past those overseers. Which I mean that's 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 the doorway through which films have to walk. A shitty movie like Transformers 89 or whatever it is that basically uh, sets everything in Hong Kong and really does a lot to make the Chinese military look great, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> Sorry, Jason Knight. <laughs> Audience, my brilliance with Transformers 89 has crippled our, our my co-host here. But that movie was clearly a cynical attempt to, to get into the Chinese market. This film doesn't seem like that to me. And then, so aside from that, that takes us to the other point that you're saying. What I think you're saying is this, is this a good fucking movie? Because, well, and I should add that whatever attempts this, the producers made and, and Defton Cretton made to appease the Chinese government, it didn't work. They did not want this movie to be released. And Marvel films do very well in China. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Especially since like Captain America did well broadly, even in countries where we're not necessarily friendly with. Avengers Endgame was astoundingly popular in China. Like I, I just looked at this today. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, so, so there is a reason that Marvel and Disney did try to craft this film for the Chinese market because they've had some inroads. Yeah. They've had a lot of success, but they, they didn't, they didn't get a passing grade. But what this film definitely does do is it definitely, and I'm not Chinese, but it does seem to be a film to to my eyes outside looking in that would definitely appeal to the Chinese American market uh, maybe the Asian American market in general and other such communities in other Western countries I mean this is this is a film that certainly boosts and helps out in that in that representational area uh, and and every place else it's been a wild success yeah yeah oh, okay pause don't don't let that cat take out the internet jason <laughs> that would be terrible we're having such a great conversation it won't happen so audience that's part one of our podcast on shang chi talk about the film now let's talk about the film so this film uh start is this a sequel to the iron man films well i mean see that's very interesting because actually it's hard to talk about this movie without talking about the iron man films i would just say iron man 3 but actually there i, I give people a lot of credit there's been a lot of talk about the first iron man and the fact that the uh the symbol for the 10 rings is visible in the first scene in the first iron man but we're talking about the mcu this movie is a sequel to all it's true it's true and it's crafted that way and i want to i i, I want to say that and i want to kind of put a pin right there because that is something that is a piece that as we can as we review it that i will want to explore as we go on because this is definitely this is not a standalone film no no but you could watch it and be able and 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 follow this saga pretty well but it does draw on the past you know 15 18 20 years of marvel filmmaking um in terms of story but also also in terms of storytelling style. Yes, yes. I'm, I'm going to want to come back to that. Absolutely. So, Jason, do you remember how the film starts out? It's been a little while since I've seen it. So I, I actually watched it a couple times. This was my Thanksgiving break kind of uh, viewing, folks. The film opens with a a backstory, kind of a kind of a prologue, or yes, where we where, where we discover the legend of the of the Ten Rings. Yeah. And there was this this individual uh, who were introduced to who discovered the Ten Rings. We don't know how. The film provides us with some uh, you know, kind of vague stories of, you know, maybe he found it in a crater or something. And he these Ten Rings gave him power that, you know, in the ancient world made him unbeatable and he became this 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 Alexander the Great or or Genghis Khan type figure who who uh, conquered all of these kingdoms and, and was just this incredibly powerful figure. And 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 so so there's kind of this mythology that is created. And, and, it's been around for like a thousand years, right? Because 
because of these. Yes, uh, because it grants him uh, unusual long life. Um, it is and, precious. Yeah, yeah, right. And, and to kind of, um, you know, kind of go off of what Max was saying about the original comic, this is supposed to be the Fu Manchu character, yeah. but Marvel went out of their way, and the writers went out of their way to recast the character yeah. in a way that would not be offensive, that would not be a part of the yellow scare kind of literature that Max was talking about. And, 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 and you know, I, I don't want to go back to that, but my understanding is, is that's their attempt to do this was not enough for uh, the Chinese government. Is that, is that the case? Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Because I thought this, I thought they succeeded admirably. I agree. I, I agree. Uh, Zhu, uh, Zhu Wenwu seems like a, a very, he starts out as a very kind of standard Marvel uh, villain, a guy bent on self-advancement, creating a world in his own image and all that kind of, all that kind of thing. He begins as not a very complex villain, very much in his own world, in his own interests. And in that way, you know, he could be anybody from any, any world. So I, I'm, I'm a little surprised that it wasn't enough because the other thing that they do too, is they don't really, he creates this underworld or organization the tin rings and but it doesn't it doesn't give into that yellow scare sort of trope of trying to take over the european world or anything like that you know he seems almost very content to rule as he does but yeah. i thought they succeeded admirably in avoiding those those kind of racist tropes and kind of creating a, a cool villain i agree with that i actually i i didn't have a problem with any of that there's kind of an interesting mythology and and uh for someone like myself who didn't know much about Shang-Chi. I, I was you know, I mean obviously the title of the film is Shang-Chi the Legend of the Ten Rings so I was very struck by the fact that when the film began that we were confronted with a very new mythology yeah. that I you know that I wasn't sure okay I'm not sure even where they're going to go with this. I've not I've not ran into this before. Yeah. Yeah. Well it's interesting so, so as, the, as, as we see him like ruling the world he's trying to get into this forest that has even greater secrets for him to find uh, it's this ancient bamboo forest um, where he meets a woman who handles him with some ease. And she's yes. not welcome here, you gotta go. And they and 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 but she likes him. She sees some potential in him. And this is where the film sort of really intrigued me because our hero, our, our villain, goes through a couple of different uh, goes through a couple of different arcs here. He has his redemptive arc in the front half, in the front, in the in 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 the very beginning of the very first reel of the film. What we call reels, it's all digital now. There are no reels, but he has it in the prologue and he meets this wonderful magical lady who bests him another interesting thing here uh, marvel has managed to incorporate some of the mythology of the iron man villain the mandarin into this movie but it's also divested that of of that those some of those early racist tropes that that were kind of unavoidable in the 60s when the mandarin was created uh the mandarin was the first iron man villain uh he had these magical tin rings on his fingers that could do various things and in that iteration of the, this power, the Ten Rings, each ring could do a different thing. I don't remember what the... I have my Marvel Universe, I could break it out and we could see what all the Ten Rings do, but audience, each ring does something different and cool. But they didn't want to lean too heavily into that, I noticed, probably because we've already had that. We just had the Infinity Gauntlet. It would have been a lot of similarities there. Yeah. So, so these rings just imbue him with some power. But but I thought that was really interesting. But our our uh, Wu Win, uh, sorry, sorry, Win Wu, meets this woman and it has happened with a lot of people. They meet the person 
of their dreams and it makes them want to be better for that man or woman or that non-binary person that they've they've attached to and he keeps going back to the forest and let and is less and less concerned about penetrating the forest for its secrets and more and more about winning the heart of the woman in the forest who is what's her name jason do you remember uh ying li ying li yeah and and after a while he does it and she comes back to his compound and at this point win Wu is content he puts the rings away never to be the bad guy again he has he has shang chi he has his daughter and all is well though as a villain from dr strange would say the bill comes due and you can't walk away from a thousand years of terrorizing everybody and just convince everybody i'm better now (laughs) and There are some people who want to make him pay, and so they come and try to kill him or kill some people in his family. Yeah, and, but we uh, we find that out later. Oh, we do find that out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're, we're, we're skipping ahead a bit. Okay, sorry. Let me back up. Audience, pretend I didn't say any of that. When does the when does the prologue end? No, um, uh, I believe it ends with them having a child. Oh. And, uh, you know, everything is well. And... <laughs> So I think this might be the point where, because I mean, audience, I have a lot of affection for this movie, quite a bit, and I'll get to that later. But as we go forward here, there are some things that I want to point out. And that is that there are some things about the storytelling that I would change. Okay. I actually, I um, I, I, I like the story of the prologue very much. I I actually, though, don't like prologue. Oh. I, I actually do not. I, I actually wish that they had not given us this prologue that tells us about Sauron and the Ring of Power and all of that. I, But but, but, I, but I want to pause a little bit too. I want to pause a little bit too because folks, as those of you that have listened to more than a few episodes know, I'm a big James Bond fan. I have a very high tolerance for formula and I, I like formula when it's done well. And I do think the formula is mostly done very well here. But I kind of want to pause because I, I do feel like this is formula. This prologue? This is formula. This is Kenneth Branagh's blueprint for an MCU film. We start off with thousands of years ago, there was this war that happened. There was this, there was this man who found these rings and, and he did this and he did that, but then he met this woman and that sets the stage for everything that you're about to see. And Marvel has done that in other films since then. But this is, this is a bit formulaic and I actually feel like that it is an example of how this film is like a James Bond film. It is crafted for what we expect. And I, I, in my imagination, I could see where this film could be made in a much more creative way. But I expect, no, I don't expect. I insist that we will revisit what I just said as we go along. It'll be interesting if we do revisit that, though, because I'm going to, of course, edit out everything you just, every criticism you just said about the movie. <laughs> I, I actually, it's, it's very interesting because, um, see, I just said that and I I don't really mean it as a criticism because as a James Bond fan, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with the formula. Yeah. But I, I guess that as I watched it, I kind of thought, you know, it would be interesting to recast this or not re, uh, not recast it as in actors. Yeah. But to kind of reframe this plot because actually I think the screenplay is great. It is absolutely great great and we'll get into that but this could have been an awesome small low budget film yeah awesome 
absolutely awesome. And I hope to make that case stronger before we're done. Because, but but I want to emphasize this. I when I say this, I do not mean this as as a strike against the film. It is a criticism. It's not a strike. I think that's a useful distinction. Yes. I mean, as you say that, I refer to this segment as its version of the title scrawl. Yeah, which, totally. Which, which 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 a lot of fantasy films have to figure out a way to to situate the viewer into a, a new mythology. And I wasn't particularly bothered by the title scroll, but I did. And audience, what I mean by the title scroll is I'm going all the way back to 1977, late 77, when we saw when when Star Wars had to introduce us very quickly into what A New Hope was going to be about. And it has this scroll of of, of text that lets us know. Now, the title scroll is hard to beat as, as a introduce the audience to a new world device, but it's hard to do it without people saying, oh, that's fucking Star Wars. So, so other films have had to figure out other ways. This is the Lord of the Rings scrawl, which is yes. a voiceover actor kind of telling us about the mythology of the world. I think it's done well, and that's how I judged it. Like Sort of like how you and I judge the Howard Hawks trilogy. Well, they're all done well. We've seen this film, well, now three uh, three times, you know, but it's done well. So it, it, It's executed well, and it works. Yeah. See, I'm not suggesting that what we just saw or what we just talked about doesn't work. It does. It definitely works, and I definitely enjoyed it. I just was, I was very conscious of the fact that, oh, Branagh did this in Thor. Yeah. Peter Jackson did this in The Fellowship of the Ring. And, and and you're quite right. Peter Jackson, I think we can say, maybe he didn't invent it, but he he definitely rolled out the, the best version of, let's give you the backstory and bring you up to date so that you can dive into what's yeah. going and, and, and this prologue does its job. It's, it's well done. It's well paced. It gives us uh, generous close-ups of the characters to show us their attachment to each other. It's not poorly done at all, but it is definitely following a blueprint. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. I guess I'll leave in what you said. I won't cut it out. But so we get that prologue and we see the baby and then we do get a, a clever beat after that, which is our hero kind of going through his day, getting ready to do his whatever it is that he's going to do. And I mean, the, the trailer sort of gave this away, but it's a gag that works even better when you see the film when he does his exercises, he's getting ready for the day. And then you see this like sharp ass car pull up very Bondian, crisp shoes get out and you, you're expecting the you're expecting the hero to have to, to be the one in, behind the wheel. But instead, the guy behind the wheel tosses his keys of this posh vehicle to the valet who is the hero of the movie, uh, Shang-Chi, who is a valet at some hotel with his buddy Aquafina, uh, play, uh, who plays Katie. Now, so we see that we, we, we probably understand from the prologue that he's the baby, right? right? In these early scenes. And I think even in the early, I think what we get from that prologue, that when we cut to him in his apartment, he's sort of thinking about that legend. I mean, he's, we get a lot of the backstory through his reflections. We see him kind of flashing back a bit in his head to, to his own history, right? Yeah. So he's a valet and he's living kind of a very hum, not, not, a, not a bad life, but it is, it is a very ordinary life. Yeah. You know, I did sort of like that. I sort of liked that he was happy with his ordinary life. No, totally. And, and, and I think that the 
film portrays young people, I, I um, God, would they be millennials or is, I mean, are millennials too old for this now? But I mean, I've lost track of what. Yeah. Doing. Yeah. So, but, but I mean, but I, I definitely feel like that they were just trying to portray two people who are best friends living in a major city, in this case, San Francisco. And this is just where they are. Different motivations. Katie is a little bit more of a risk taker. Yeah. And Sean, as she knows him, is a little bit more reserved. And this is the job that they have. They have fun together. They have fun apart because they they are different people, but they've known each other for a long time. But they're young people. They're very integrated in each other's lives. They're good friends like that because he comes over to her house and interacts with her family. It's really it's really well done. In, in Oh, absolutely. They know each other very well. You know, she's kind of lives in the moment and just kind of lives day by day. Sean is quite happy to just kind of have this job and be her friend. And both of them don't really anticipate anything. No, no. We get the sense that it is kind of nice the way they, they kind of expose her as being something of an underachiever because they they have dinner with a couple of their friends frequently. We get the sense, you know, that they they have dinner with, there's a couple that, that uh, Shang-Chi and uh, Katie hang out with and they wonder and, and, and their friends the girl is, are satisfied with their lives. Yeah, because the girl you kind of get the sense that Katie was friends with the the, the, the other girl in the, the, the couple. Yeah. And, but they're still friends, but Katie hasn't really, you know, Katie's very satisfied with her job, but her friend is very successful, yeah. dating somebody who's very successful, and she now looks down on the decisions that Katie and Sean are making. Yeah, yeah, it, it, that's right, that's right. And so, so very quickly, though, we are going to get introduced to Sean's world as Katie and Sean, after, after our first introduction to their daily routine where they should have probably gone in earlier, but instead they went to a karaoke bar and got drunk and did karaoke well, well, well but you know we, okay we have to linger here for a moment because actually i just issued a not a demerit but a criticism of the film but, but i i have to say something about destin daniel cretton the director there are so many things about this movie that are smartly done and effective in turn i mean we're going to talk about action scenes we're going to talk about drama but this film does uh comedy very well it does for a broad audience because actually i I think that the gag about the karaoke is is actually a pretty important gag in the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of making it a film that um maybe a distant cousin to Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like like this film actually does humor very well. And not every and not not even every Marvel film does that well. No, no. This this film does lean into that a little bit and has and has some it's not afraid to have fun, you know. Yes. And so, but the next day, after we've met the characters, we find that 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 Shang-Chi, uh, his world is going to come creeping back in. And it happens, I think, on a bus ride, right? That's where we get our first major sense yes. that this world is not what Katie thinks it is. Well, but um, I'm I'm big on referring to past episodes of Max and Jason Watch a Movie. I guess I'm the archivist, folks. <laughs> Um, when we did Godzilla, which was like 30 episodes ago, I pointed out brilliantly and correctly that the depiction of San Francisco sucked. Yes. Not true here. No. Not true here. You you bathe in San Francisco in my opinion. And it's a it's a great thing. You could almost see Harry Callahan on some of the street corners of this movie. <laughs> 
you or Steve McQueen in his uh, 1969 Mustang. You definitely get a feel for what San Francisco is like, and it's, it's quite nice. But we find we we get introduced to the Razor Fist and some of uh, the Si Fan who are after Shang Chi, and this is where like Shang Chi basically has to defend this bus and all these people from these people who are trying to attack him to take his necklace. He's got a necklace on on his neck, as it happens, that that these people want to take, and and he's unwilling to part with it because it was given to him by his mom. His mom, we'll find out, I think. And what happens is this is such a tightly choreographed and really wonderful fight scene that has a lot of practical effects and just great kind of Hong Kong style kung fu action. And and what I mean by that is, is Hong Kong kung fu filmmaking of the 1980s, which was very heavily predicated on like very intricate stunt work, but uh, like practical actro- acrobatics, you might call it, yes. combined with very tight, more realistic style fighting. It's not so we're going to get a few different styles of fighting in this film that are all kind of really faithfully done. Uh, and and, and but the three styles of fighting, I, I think maybe two actually, but two styles of kung fu film we get depicted in here. We get the graceful wire work of something that looks like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and then we get stuff that looks like the best of Jackie Chan's late. 80s work, you rumble in the Bronx, you know, hard hitting, heavy impact, but kinetic stuff that looks that looks pretty realistic this bus is this bus is something that you would have seen in rumble in the bronx uh, jackie chan would have been proud to have done this scene but it's the other thing that is nice about this is that as the fight progresses towards its end and the bus that they're fighting on is about to wreck shang chi saves three people from grisly automotive death in the film and this is such a nice nod to the the character of shang chi from the comic book who was always trying to help people who really didn't like to fight that much but he would go out of his way to save people's lives in in dire situations like this you know he would use his athleticism and stuff to save lives and he was really dedicated to helping others and i thought that was a nice little way to show who shang chi was he wasn't just a great fighter but he he stopped the fight to save some people you know in this scene well there's a handful of well actually no i mean more than a handful of scenes in this movie that that are contenders for the best scene in the movie and this is one of them yes now but i i do want to i do want to pause here to return to my brilliant thesis what if this was a movie that began with sean and katie parking people's cars katie is clearly the the most uh aggressive member of this little duo friendship and he kind of goes along with it but for the most part sean yeah you know i don't want to i don't really want to do that and this kind of thing and he, but he's got this necklace around his neck and we don't really know why he's wearing that and then suddenly they're on this bus and they get assaulted and Katie like the viewer is like you know we can't handle these guys you know back off and then suddenly out of nowhere Sean just makes quick work of everybody yeah would wouldn't that have enhanced this scene immensely because here's the problem with this scene the scene is well executed it is it is one of the best scenes in the movie everything that you just said about uh, the fight scene about Sean saving people is exhilarating. I, I found this scene absolutely breathtaking and it made me want just more from this movie as it went along. But what if, and I'm thinking about this as a director, what if we were able to experience this scene through Katie's eyes? As in, what the hell's happening? Who Who is this guy? Yeah. But because of the prologue, 
which I'm suggesting is, I'm not going to use the word cliche. I'm a James Bond fan. I don't have a problem with formula. I'm, I'm going to repeat that to myself. But if the prologue was not there, this scene could have been a, what the hell is happening? What's this guy's story? I have to piece it together. It would have placed us more in Katie's point of view than this film does. And it, I, I have to confess, it took me, I, I watched this film twice close together and it was the second viewing that, that actually made me really appreciate Katie as a character. Well, I wondered, so after, as I thought about the movie after I saw it, I wondered about that, this scene specifically, because this is the scene where it matters the most, but it, it plays out for the rest of the film as, uh, too, but this is the scene where it would have hit the hardest. I wondered if maybe the film might have not been, I don't want to say punchier or harder hitting in terms of this dynamic between Katie and, and Sean, quote unquote, if they hadn't cut the prologue out and then paid out the mystery of his origins over the course of the film. Uh, the way they were doing it in flashbacks for a lot of the film, you know? Um, yes, I mean, they do it well. You, Throughout the film, they do do it well. You have to ask, though, and like, I, I think I'm with you, though. I, I don't think that the film is hurt. In fact, I don't. I, I'll say that it's not hurt. Right. But it does it does change the, the dynamic a bit for the viewer I, I, by having this prologue, which is well done and, and beautiful to watch. But there is that question of, do you, do you want to bring Katie to the fore and have the audience sit with her in the way we sit with Scarlett Johansson and Hawkeye and Avengers? So, see, and that's an interesting point because actually I think the film does want to do that yeah katie is a very important character who it took me a second viewing to realize and i don't think that it should have I, I i actually feel like that the the only reason that i didn't appreciate katie the first time was because of the story structure yeah. again i i agree with you it's this is not a criticism but a tighter film a smaller film but okay because actually i mean this is a compliment because this film is is made as a blockbuster and i get that and I support it but my so, so yeah I totally mean this is a compliment wow if this was a small low budget film the story is fucking amazing yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so many things you can do with it that that are are kind of mind blowing yeah yeah and, and then and you talked about the choreography and the action scenes those are awesome too those two elements are astounding and I and, and so you know I want to keep you know as you just said I want to keep kind of touching on this that you know these these slight criticisms are not detractors no but i think that the question needs to be asked so that uh, you know i know a lot of filmmakers listen to this podcast and hang on our every wizened sage-like word but or they should or they should but the question you have to ask and i is is the is the tension the dynamic tension that we kind of want do do we find ourselves enough in that dynamic tension between katie and sean's deceptions because she does feel very betrayed after this moment that, that, um, that all works that yeah. all works yeah. but might but might more audience members have immediately gravitated towards that and understood that was what was going on if we'd had like less of an intro into Shang-Chi now the other question though that I'm sure that they were asking themselves when they were writing this film and creating this film was like okay a lot of people know who Shang-Chi is do we want to take a chance on having too many members of the audience go what the fuck is going on here do we want to give them do we want to give them a good foothold before we dive into the story and so i think sort of what we're saying here is that you and i you and i are a little more comfortable with ambiguity
ambiguity in the in the first act than a lot of people are willing to be. But this is a blockbuster. Yeah. I so I think that's the point that I was trying to make. I get it. Yeah. I get what they're trying to do. Yeah. But you you have to wonder, like, well, maybe maybe next time. I think. Blade might be a good example of a film that sort of starts in the middle of a story and then kind of explains how Blade became Blade. Yeah. I think in a way that this film could have done and 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 maybe ratcheted up that our our finding Katie to be our our surrogate in the story. Yeah, but see, but see, I think that's where I mean, even though like I'm I'm very pro Katie. Oh yeah, yeah, me too. I, I've, heard but, some, but... I've heard there's some controversy about Aquafina in this movie, and I have you have you read about anybody there's been no i haven't aquafina i guess i think she's great so aquafina you know good job i know you're a listener as well yeah well but see i'd be interested because like i had an experience like the first time i watched it i didn't really like her okay second time i loved her now now looking at it i feel like my original reaction was the reason that i didn't invest in her is because now i feel like because i think she gives a a great performance yeah but i feel like that the narrative purpose of this character is not served by the by the narrative decisions okay but whereas what i'm laying out to you is that katie as this kind of very modern young woman living in san francisco you know she she does her job she earns her pay she takes care of her family but she loves having a good time she's somebody that you can relate to and to see the story through her eyes which you can still do oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you can still do that and the film does succeed when you do that but i don't think the narrative i think the narrative was designed to serve a blockbuster mentality yeah rather than saying look i i have a comparison i have a comparison katie is is brody you know chief brody from jaws afraid of the water totally in over his head um doesn't know what's going on but he's going to do it anyway katie's very brave she's very much a thrill seeker but she didn't expect any of this yeah she didn't expect that her best friend was the son of this immortal warlord and is probably the greatest martial artist he and his sister of all time yeah yeah so I think if the film had if if the film had narrative narratively leaned into that, yeah. it would have been a little stronger. Now this is a blockbuster. We're many years after Jaws. I'm not suggesting that I'm deducting points because of this. No, no, I I get that. But it is it, these are fun questions to ask. Like how would the film maybe have hit the viewer if it had done that? As a, I always think about that scene that makes me realize that one of our surrogates in Avengers is Black Widow. I mean, she's a human. This is all craziness to her, right? Even though she's seen some stuff over the years, but we kind of see a lot of what happens and the craziness from that human perspective and sort of Aquafina has to function as our surrogate or she she functions very well as the audience surrogate in this movie. Yes, um, and, and, and I, I like her as that. Absolutely, I, no. I just felt like that I had to kind of warm up to that and had to discover it for myself. Yeah. And, and I wondered why, and I feel like it's the narrative structure. The question to ask is, you could have still maybe had a blockbuster, but maybe we learn the mystery as Katie learns it. Because with that prologue, we know more than she does. And so it takes a while for that kind of, that, that prologue to recede from our mind. And, and about in the middle of the second act, we start realizing that Katie is our surrogate in the film, you know? Yes. 
but because the prologue's in our head, I do see what you're saying that we we miss the joy of her finding it, uh, uh, uncovering the mystery of Sh- of her friend, right? Because we've already had that mystery exposed. But I mean, like you said, it's so well done. It's not really a criticism, but it doesn't do it doesn't do service necessarily to Aquafina, uh, Aquafina's Katie, you know. So that takes us to the end of this, where she says, "Who the hell are you, Sean?" And he's like, "My name's not Sean." <laughs> <laughs> right. And and then we sort of get this uh the the paying out of his story. And she takes it pretty well in stride. And he was like, These guys were after this necklace, and my dad's a, a fucking criminal. And I think that this must be what my sister was writing to me about. And she's like, You have a sister. <laughs> she's like, You got a what? A sister? Because she doesn't know anything about this. Is where she, she sort of realizes all the stuff she's kind of let slide about Shang-Chi not saying much about his past. Right. Is suddenly come to bite her right because she's like all right well you got to tell me everything and he's like well i've got to go and he tells her some things look if they're after me and they want my part of this medallion they're going to go after my sister too so i gotta go talk to her and she's like well fine you tell me on the plane then and so she's she's like i'm your goddamn partner (laughs) um everybody that's a indiana jones reference And I really love the way Simu Liu delivers these this scene because he yes. he he clearly feels bad about the deception. Well, because he never expected anything to ever happen. Yeah, exactly. He thought he was out. And, and he finds out that he wasn't. And we also will find out, too, that there's a lot of guilt uh, about what he's got to do to go see his sister, right? Mm-hmm. But that's that's to come. We get some fun comedy on the plane ride over to... Do they go to Hong Kong? I can't remember where they go. Yeah, I think it might be Hong Kong. Yeah. I- now, the big rumor, everybody, prior to this, uh, everybody was expecting him to go to Madripoor, which, uh, of course, is a huge uh, Marvel hotspot in uh, Southeast Asia, where Wolverine hung out a lot, and so, but it wasn't Mad Report. Turned out to be Hong Kong. He goes to this hot nightclub or what, what, whatever, where his sister resides, and uh, he discovers that he's been entered in into a tournament of martial arts. Well, actually, I I should have stopped you. It's not. It's Macau. Macau. Oh, I'm sorry. Now, and and the reason well, some archivist I, you are. Well, no, I mean, I mean, actually, I uh, I, I should have rescued uh, you there because when they were going through the streets of, of Macau, I actually was looking for the bottoms up club from the man with the golden gun. And gotcha. So well, actually, yeah, I should have I should have known that. Well, I'm leaving your your failure in the pie. I won't edit this out. But this is one of the things I do like about the film too. There's a lot of location shooting. Yes. Totally. And you and I talk about how rich that makes the film, right? It grounds it mm-hmm. in, in, in the real world. And so instead of being on sound stages or being in uh, wholly in front of green screens we feel like we're in real places throughout this movie even when we're in fantastic places because the film has done so much to ground itself in yes. in the real world and in real world shooting that also helps the actors a lot too right. if you're in a real place and so he discovers he's in a tournament and they see that the stakes of this tournament can be quite yeah. brutal this tournament is broadcast on the dark web you know in 20 years we're gonna be like oh we can we, we'll see like an intellectual 
intellectual trend or hobby horse or fear. A lot of movies have some reference to the dark web, and this film's going to be in that in that category. That will it will be defined. You know, it'll it'll define its time a little bit. But but we we get the clip that we were all wondering about from the trailer, which was Wong and Abomination having a fight in the ring. Yes, and it's a fun little fight. They've in so everybody the Abomination is a Hulk villain, and uh, he made his first appearance in we have seen before we have seen before now they've changed design a little bit they've made it a little bit more in line with the comic book designs uh, while keeping some of the elements of the of that Edward Norton film go ahead so I tell you what what, everyone's talking about the fact that oh look it's the abomination Mm -hmm. and you know they're gonna bring him back if they uh, if they decide to take the Incredible Hulk Ed Norton film and remove it from continuity I will be very pissed I I will be too I'm sick of that shit I'm sick of this that's not canonical anymore no Stop, don't do that. Don't and 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 to be fair, the MCU has been very good at that so far. Yeah, no, and I don't, I don't think they will do that. I think that I think that the Hulk film is canonical. It's a good Marvel film. I know some people yes. don't like it as much as others. I think it's a great Hulk movie. I like it too. I have no complaints about it. Actually, I I I, I dig it. I'm I might watch it this weekend. Actually, now that we we've talked about it, but <laughs> but we we they have a little fight. Abomination seems to be getting the upper hand, but then. Wong demonstrates some of his magical prowess and he gets the upper hand and it looks like it's just they're friends in some way. Abomination seems to be trying to learn some things from Wong and they have a little see you next time, see you next time and Wong does his little magic teleportation and it's a great scene. It's a it's it's a little throwaway moment. Yeah. Wong will come back up later but but uh, but that certainly grounds <laughs> Shang-Chi's worries about what he's expected to do and so but he's going to fight uh, one of the champions of the ring but he doesn't want to do that I just want to see my sister well you can see her after now of course sharp viewers who have seen a lot of kung fu movies who have seen a lot of action movies realize oh I bet he's going to have to fight his sister I thought that I was like oh that's what this is and so he fights her and in a kind of pleasing way to my eyes anyway he loses the fight Right. and I kind of liked that and she's very angry with him and this audience this sort of plays out in the comic book as well they started out a bit antagonistically in the comic book. In this movie, though, I believe their conflict more than I necessarily believe the conflict in the comic book. But they also do kind of play with some of the same elements. She's made herself, you know, she eventually escaped her father, too. And isn't it in this moment where we get the backstory about why she's so angry with him? Yes. It's justifiable. Totally justifiable. Now, but again, I'm going to have to pause this again to make my brilliant case. Hold on while I mute you. This, this movie is called Shang-Chi. He's the main character. I, I agree with you. I, I like how that's done. I like that his sister gets the best of him. Mm-hmm. I like their relationship. I like every single beat of that. I like how Katie is dealt with. I like everything about this movie in terms of how the characters are dealt with and how they fit into the action storyline. I would revisit what I just said, though. If this was a movie where we are looking at this from Katie's perspective, 
perspective, then some of these movements would would make a little bit more sense. But it actually makes it look like, okay, this movie's about Shang-Chi, but we have to let all these other characters have their moment. I'm all in favor of these characters having their moment, but this the narrative structure of this movie kind of builds up to Shang-Chi being, being not only the main character, but by far the most important character. And I would contend, and we'll get to this later, that that's not what this movie's about. This movie actually diffuses the importance very well amongst all the main characters, even some that we have yet to meet. And I think that that would have been better served if we had the narrative had gone for a less um, ambitious, sweeping, epic scale and had actually gone from a Katie's point of view, my best friend, oh my God, he's this martial arts expert. Oh, this is his sister. She can kick his ass though. And, oh, you know, and now there's all these, you know, and then now I'm going to fit into it and I'm going to slay smog and all this kind of thing. Like, I think that would, that would have worked better than, than having this prologue and Shang-Chi is the sun and he's the heir and there's all this kind of thing. And, and then, but then we have to pause here and he has to get his ass kicked here. He has to get his ass kicked there. In, in, in defense of the film, he, he loses the fight to her because he's not trying to fight her as much as she's trying to fight him. Okay. But I, I didn't, this, none of this is a, for me affected by our earlier criticism of the, of the, well, not even criticism, basically our what if audience CR episode on what if, if you haven't listened to that already. But we're asking some what if questions about pacing and stuff that boil down to subjective viewer experience. To me, this stuff isn't isn't affected by that prologue because so much of it is about also about Shang-Chi and, and Katie watching this happen to him. What we find out, audience, is that like he was sent off on a mission to kill one of the men who his father's pretty sure killed his mother. One of the people who were involved in the murder of his mother. And, and so he does this mission and he's fully bought into his father's position when he leaves the compound of the Ten Rings. And this is actually what happens in the comic book too. Uh, Shang-Chi goes on his first mission of his dad to kill somebody and it's on that mission where he basically is sickened by the realization that his dad's basically turning him into a monster and he's asking him to do something that's not moral, right? Um, in the comic book, he's he's been convinced of his dad's worldview that, that Fu Manchu should be on top of everything. Here, it's it's a much more understandable human kind of thing. Wen Wu had left his life of crime and decided to be peaceful and this world of uh, of black markets and, and criminal intrigue just kept pulling him back and they killed his wife and he's decided to sh- decided that by being weak for a while it put his family in jeopardy and so his whole what we what we'll learn about Win Wu is that his whole mission is to become was to become powerful enough that his family couldn't be hurt anymore right. by other people it's a little more complex and I'll get into Win Wu later on because I this is Win Wu is maybe one of my favorite Marvel villains films in the films yeah in the MCU films he's one of my favorite villains and I think his motivations are a little different than a lot of them you want to talk about who played him yes I do Tony I've I've always known him as Tony Leung this guy like Michelle Yeoh were products of the Hong Kong era of uh, you know pre this is still Britain Hong Kong when they were making you know some of their epics but he is uh, one of my favorite Hong Kong actors I don't think he's like necessarily a a kung fu guy I mean he can do some stuff for the screen and stuff like that but but he was in uh, one of the biggest actors yes he is you know I don't know what the analogy would be 
you know, for the Chinese market to our market. But I mean, you know, he's somebody like Al Pacino or Robert De Niro. I mean, he's he's a guy who is just in a lot of great movies. And uh, and he and Michelle Yeoh have done a few movies together prior to this. But my favorite movie of his that we, we I think we'll have to cover on this is uh, Hard Boiled with John Woo, which is a very Miami Vice with maybe 10,000 more bullets. <laughs> But it's a great movie. But I mean, he's an amazing actor and he demonstrates in this film why he's gotten the praise that he's gotten. But so he sends his son on this mission and his sister doesn't want him to go or his sister wants to, her, him to take her with him. I can't remember which one it is, but he says, I'll be back. And he never comes back. Yeah. And and because he there's some ambiguity about why. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of assume that he just kind of got, you know, he found other things to do. And what he says, what he says is when I, what he tells Katie is like, I couldn't go back to my dad after that yeah and she she infers because you couldn't do the job yeah and he doesn't correct her here yeah at any rate he kind of left his sister in that in that place and what we do learn in these scenes in this in this area of the film is that after their mom died his father their father didn't have much time for her and he poured all of his energy into turning shang into an incredible weapon to use against enemies and he sort of ignored her and left her to her own devices and so she kind of has to learn a lot of their ways and her own skills on her own, which of course would make a child resentful. One wonders, and I'm going to speculate here, but this isn't another reason why the Chinese government didn't like this film because it sort of functions as, as a mild criticism of the focus on male children in Chinese culture. You know, now that now I think I think that that's starting to change in China now. So, but this 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 functions as a subtle criticism of that tendency. Um, I hadn't thought of that, and I've not read that yeah no no i i just wonder i mean like you, you don't know what's gonna set off the the uh the chinese government censors we'll find out soon when they censor our podcast from our billion listeners in china but i really feel bad for his sister in this scene even even when she so so he's gone to save her shang chi's gone to save her and what shang chi's really done inadvertently is led these people to her location yeah and and she criticizes him a little bit for that before bailing on him and leaving him trapped to deal with these people and uh, there's some funny gags like her assistant gives them the finger when they leave and uh, and so we get our second major action beat where our, our heroes have to fight the, I think it's uh, well Razor Fist and Death Dealer I think is his name what's that guy's name I don't, uh, Razor Fist. I, yeah, I don't know the other one uh, there's the guy with the crazy mask the, oh yeah 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 uh, he's Death Dealer is his name Andy Lee the guy who plays Death Dealer is it's funny he was a he's sort of a YouTube sensation he does a lot of fun stunt kung fu stunt shows on youtube and he okay. was having i think he does some stunt choreography too and some people had seen his stuff and they were like hey what you why don't you do this this role uh of, of of death dealer and death dealer is an important character in the comic book uh but he's the guy who uh trains shang chi really brutally like shang chi's training as a young lad is uh it's it's not the kind of thing you want to see right. you know? but so death dealer and razor fist and the, the rest of the uh of the sifan assassins come to get uh sorry Ji Ling's necklace Shang-Chi is has this big fight with all of them and it's, it's really great as they're fighting on the side of this you know this high rise that's under construction and it's pretty harrowing I'm kind of scared of heights not kind of I'm a lot scared of heights no me too but it's in this scene where Katie is about to be killed that we we see that while Ji Ling is very upset with her brother she still loves him and she hasn't left him behind because she comes and helps save him yeah. from from the bad guys but I think they put this is where they both get caught and brought back right yes and this is where 
where uh, their father reasserts his control over them. Well, but hold on a couple. Th- First of all, you refer to this as the second major action beat of the movie, but this also, like the first action beat, this is a great scene. This this is uh, just wonderful. I, I although I I would say one thing: the Dark Knight uh, saw Batman uh, going to I believe Hong Kong and capturing a villain against a backdrop of this kind of neon digital. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, it was wonderful. It was trend setting in a way that now is very clear. Yeah. Three four years later, Skyfall did the same thing when James Bond took out an assassin in the same fucking city. Same fucking backdrop. And when I saw it, I was like, well, this is a great movie. That that did they didn't do that in the dark night, but all right. Yeah. This movie does do the same. Yeah, that's fine. I don't I don't mind that. It does it well and it doesn't miss any beats. So I don't I don't mind. You know what I'm talking about, right? I do know what you're talking about. Now I have a question though, because there's this moment in this scene that I had almost forgotten about, but it stood out to me at the time, and as we were talking, it kind of stands out to me now. As Shang-Chi is fighting Death Dealer. We get this flashback during the fight of all of the cruelty that Death Dealer has heaped on him. And Shang-Chi gets the better of Death Dealer. Yeah. And he's going to kill him right there in that room. And now I'm not bothered by that. I think Death Dealer is an asshole. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. And, and but to me, that was a... F- stark move Marvel made. Like, it, it, I, I can't remember, some some explosion knocks him off of Death Dealer, but I sort of liked the basic human instinct that Shang-Chi shows there, and he's like, this guy has been cruel to me my whole life. He's put me in danger. He's put my friends in danger. And, you know, that's about enough of that. And he's, yeah. you know, and he's gonna kill him. And and I thought, you know, he's and one of the things that, that I think is neat about this moment is that at least this is what I, this is the sense I got, you know, Shang-Chi is probably going to feel bad about this later, but in the moment he's going to do pragmatically the right thing. And and maybe morally, I don't know if this is, if this is wrong morally. Um, Did, did that moment where he rears back with that dagger, did that stick out to you as a, as a particularly dramatic moment? Oh, totally. Totally. It almost seemed unmarveled to me that he did that. Unmarveled. Like think about the way the heroes act. Like would Cap have done that? Would Cap have killed that guy? Would, Iron Man have killed that guy? Would even Thor have killed that guy? Okay, definitely no. I you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely a new wrinkle. Yeah, and, and in some of those cases, it's less personal. This was a very personal bit of abuse that 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 Shang Chi had abused uh, had endured under this guy for like fifteen years of his life or more. Yeah, and, and so anyway, it just seemed like an interesting choice. You know, like instead of knocking him out and leaving, he was going to knock him out permanently. <laughs> Yeah, you know, um, but then, but then I think that then there's a little uh, flashbang or some kind of explosion that knocks them off of them, and that's when we 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 get reintroduced to Win Wu, and Win Wu comes in very suave, and he's like, "Son, you know, I told them they wouldn't be able to kill you if they tried. I'm happy I was right, you know." Yeah. Um, demonstrating that he's sort of not the father that that he once was, you know. You have you have a pensive look. Have, have I have, have I shortchanged? Yeah, no, I you know uh, it's just one of the interesting things about that scene 
scene. So we so we have this prologue with, with the father, and we understand that he starts off as this kind of Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan type conqueror, and then he's tempered. And then by this point, we know that 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 um, that, that he's changed. And so I actually in this scene, I found him his his ability to reattach with his children to be very um, dare I say heartwarming. Well, you, you get the sense that he likes them. He's, he's a stern father. They, they, they are very they are very important to him. Absolutely. Um, uh, because, but, because his primary motivation is no longer conquest. No. It's his family, but he's just unrealistic about that expectation. Dearest, sweet audience, it pains me to do this, but I'm going to have to break up Shang-Chi into a couple of episodes. We ran pretty long, but I think the discussion overall was was fairly interesting. So what I'm going to do is give you part one this week, uh, a little late, again, the New Year's holidays, yada, 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 accept my apologies for a slightly later release date. Um, I'm going to release episode one of this this week, and then on Thursday or Friday, I will release part two. And I, and I hope you guys are enjoying this. Uh, I feel like we covered a lot of interesting, interesting ground in this episode. And and uh, Shang-Chi is definitely a movie worth spending some time on. So uh, we'll see you next week. Share us on social media. Share us on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Share us wherever it is that you share things on the interwebs. And uh, we'll catch you guys next week. Uh, I hope you guys had a wonderful holiday, a wonderful happy uh, and happy new year. And uh, we'll see you guys later on in 2022. Bye. I, I actually did a lot of uh, searches today. And everything, every article I found was about the um the china market and the controversy behind that which uh was interesting for political reasons but not for production reasons so i mean are we going to be banned in china i guess Wait, do do we do we want to jeopardize a billion listeners you should watch 1957 witness for the prosecution it is it is astounding you know what the ending of the novel is? He gets abducted by aliens and they probe out his cancer, so he's fine. Uh, nothing quite so crazy. So let's see here. So let's just iron this out. So you're going to say, hello, this is Max and Jason. Watch a movie. We're going to review the best movie in history. Um, Shang-Chi. Or something like that. Or something like that.